As a longtime futures trader, I typically always look at trading as a full-time job. But actually, a vast majority of the traders out there trading are not doing this full-time. They are doing this part-time. Today, my guest, Chris Peruna, has been successfully trading part-time for over 20 years. And he's going to share with us today the keys he's learned to successfully trade part-time. But before I get Chris in here, I want to remind all of you about Micro Ether Futures. They are live at CME Group. They are one-tenth the size of one ETH. To learn more, go to cmegroup.com. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group, Trading Technologies, TradeStation, and FTSE Russell. The Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol RTY and Micro E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit footsierussell.com. My man Chris is in the house. What's up, my friend? Hey, Anthony. How you doing? Doing great. So, thank you so much for being here. You know, I really enjoy your website. I enjoy your Twitter feed. And really, it's the first time you and I are getting a chance to talk. So uh, it, it's great to meet you uh, in person. You know how we are in Twitter. We talk a lot in Definitely. chat and stuff, but we've never really had a chance to, to meet and talk. And one of the things you emphasize on your blog, and like I said in my intro, was trading part-time, successfully trading part-time. It's amazing to me that so many of us out there, and I, I'm totally guilty of this as traders, we think that this has to be a full-time commitment. Uh, and, and just because we think it has to be a full-time job, and I said full-time commitment, doesn't mean that we can't do it part-time and still have a full commitment towards doing it part-time because the vast majority of the people out there are actually trading part-time with the hopes of many of them potentially trying to get to full-time if that's what they choose to do. Many people can trade and have businesses, but you have figured out how to do that. What, where were you in your life where you started to take on learning how to trade? All right. So Anthony, kind of going back, I was in college and, and it's great for where we're at today in the market and where I started. I, so I, I was in college in the late nineties. I started trading in 98. So I opened up my first account with TD Ameritrade um, with less than actually $5,000 initially when we funded it. And when I say we, cause I went to my father and said, Hey, can I fund this account? And I started trading. Now that was the heyday of the dot-com boom. I took that account. I ran that account up pretty significantly over the next couple of years. And it was fairly easy. I mean, you just bought every dip that came in every high tech stock back then. And the account went up. Well, I graduated college in 2001. So from 2000 to 2001, it was getting a little bit more difficult, but it was still kind of in that heyday. But from late 2000 into probably early 2002, I lost most of that money. I gave most of it back at that time. So when I was making the money on the way up, I was thinking in my mind as I was going to school to become an architect, hey, screw architecture. I'm going to go trade full time for a <laughs> living. I mean, this is fantastic. I'm going to make more money trading than I'm going to make my first job out of college. And if you look at that first year or so that I was trading, maybe a year and a half, I made more money from that initial small amount than what I would have made that first year as an architect. Um, but I, I learned that lesson very early in life that that wasn't going to be the case once 2001, 2002 hit. So then I really kind of hit the books at that point and said, okay, what am I really doing? What is trading? How do I, am I going to invest? My father, who was a restaurant owner, he traded a little bit himself, did stocks, did a little bit of options, but he was so old school with the way he did it with his broker before the internet was really around. I was doing it a little bit differently and he was kind of into a little bit more of traditional companies. I was into the high flying growth companies and still to this day, I love trading growth companies. Although I have multiple portfolios and I'm very conservative with index funds and some other stuff in the IRA, I really primarily focus on, can I beat the market with my growth portfolio? Last year was a good example where that didn't happen. The year before I crushed it. So it kind of varies from year to year. 
But I'd say from my say early 20s to mid 20s or so, I started to realize that maybe my mindset really wasn't the right mindset. And this was kind of reading some books and talking to some other traders to kind of set myself up to trade full time for a living. Um, and, and I say that because I really I needed a steady income and based on some of the goals I wanted out of life. And I really I'm in this real estate industry. I wanted to kind of build a family, go out, buy real estate. And I just felt that with my temperament and my mindset, it, it was going to be devastating to kind of lose money and bank my entire living on trading in the market itself. So I decided pretty early that it wasn't really for me. I said, okay, if I can't really trade for a living, how can I do this part time? Because I love the market. I love kind of reading stocks. I love trying to beat the market itself, finding these young growth companies, and then making money from it, kind of growing that net worth over time. Um, so I, I developed a little bit of a system where I said, all right, I'm going to work full time during the day, build my career, still invest a little bit in real estate, but then go out there and try to build a growth portfolio over time and see if I can beat the markets. So that's really where it started was in my 20s. I, I kind of realized very early on trading full time was not going to be for me. And I say to this day, 20 plus years later, it's definitely not for me. I can't see myself ever trading full time for a living. I wish more people would admit this. Because I think that this is how really a lot of people, I would say the majority of the, the people that when they first get into trading, full time is not for them. And this is somebody who wants the industry to grow. I want to have more traders, obviously. Uh, but I think that trading full time is not for everybody. And that does not mean that you can't have a very successful career trading part time. And a couple of key things that you talk about I think are really the difference. First, I want to talk about really just the mindset of it because it really is psychologically, I think, difficult for somebody to come into trading when they first start to trade and think about this as something that they wouldn't maybe want to do full time. So I think when they first come into it, they're like at home, at their computer, they feel this sense of, hey, if I could just sit here all day and make millions of dollars, why would I ever want to go back? So right out of the gates, they're thinking of, the great luxuries that come from successful trading, but they don't think about actually the, the difficulty and the process along the way of achieving that. And that mindset is very difficult. You figured that out in your 20s. I know you talked a little bit about how you came to that conclusion, but I, I really just want to just really get to that moment where you just understood that why actually part-time was going to be better for you. I think it was more from an income standpoint. So I was engaged, I guess I was about 23 years old or so. So it was about that time when we were just coming out of that, that dot-com bust, going into 2000, 2003, 2004. So I got engaged in 2003, I was getting married. We had an idea, we're like, hey, we want to go out, we want to buy a house. We want to buy a couple investment properties. We want to build a family over time. And we didn't want to rush it, but I just knew that seeing myself lose all that money from 2001 to 2002, I couldn't handle it mentally if I went out there and just blew everything while I'm trying to build this family with a significant other that really didn't had no interest in the market at all, maybe didn't understand what I was going through. So um, I think it was just the fact that I could just lose it all if I couldn't control that risk management, get caught in it. And I read books about Livermore and some of these great traders over time. Had no interest in the market. I heard a little feedback there. Yeah, we had feedback. It's okay. It's, okay. It, 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 we're good. No, so continue but, on. So yeah, so it was really about, it was just a risk management. I think I'm more conservative to begin with than, than a lot of folks that are out there that have that type A trading mentality. I'm a type A type person. I'm from, I grew up in New York. I live in New Jersey. So I'm this rough and tough East Coast in your face. Sometimes <laughs> I get into it with my tweets. I think as I've gotten older, I've softened up a little bit. But if you go back to some of my earlier tweets, I mean, I can really get in some tangles with some folks out there. But I just realized when it came to my finances and just my well-being from an income standpoint, 
it just wasn't going to work out for me in the markets itself. Um, I've read books about it. I, I've seen success stories of folks going out there, but just mentally the ups and the downs, I don't know if I was going to take that roller coaster and I just wasn't going to do it. So I decided based off that conservative nature that I have internally, it just wasn't the right mindset for me. So I read a book by Van Thorpe real early on. So I was probably only about 25, 26 when I read that book and kind of really got into the mindset of what a trader needs. And I think I kind of just had a good self-awareness at that age. It wasn't me. I didn't check all the boxes. So I said, okay, let's let's go to plan B. Let's go to a different route. I, I definitely want to trade. And I was doing a lot more swing trade when I was in my 20s and early 30s than I do now. I, I'd say it's a little bit more midterm to long-term investing. In the growth account itself, I definitely, I'll, I'll trade. If, if there's, if I put a trade on today and I don't like it two days from now, I'll, I'll cut the trade if it doesn't work. But I have other investments where I sit in it and some folks said, hey, you, you have a 50% drawdown in that particular position. Even if I've decreased the position a little bit, why did you do that? Well, I really like the company long-term five to 10 years. So it's a little bit of a mix. It's, it's very discretionary. It's not a mechanical system, but it works for me part-time because I have the time based on the income I have elsewhere outside of the market. So I never really have that pressure where I have to buy and sell to make a living from the market itself because my income comes from outside of the market. So it allows me to kind of have an even keeled head and make decisions. I feel for me personally, um, a little bit better because I don't have to rely on income from the market. I'm in the market kind of just to grow net worth. So if, if, if I lost everything in the market tomorrow, it doesn't really affect my lifestyle. I have income from other sources and that's what I live off. So I think that's something I just established in my 20s. I, I was just fortunate to kind of realize that very early on. Otherwise, I probably would have lo lost a lot more money than I did just from that first uh, dot-com bust. I probably would have lost a ton of money in 07, 08. But because of what I learned in that first dot-com bust, um, I did have a drawdown, of course, like everybody else. Yeah. And it was fairly significant. But again, I was still only in 2008, I was just getting to 30 years old. So I still was relatively young and didn't have a huge nest egg yet at that point. So I learned additional lessons at that point that just kind of reiterated what I actually learned a little bit earlier in life is I'm not going to do this full time and just rely on my income and my job and, and my other investments outside of, of the stocks to kind of just do what I need to do here to make this work long term. I don't know why so many traders, when they get started, have an issue with even just working if they want to be full time to have that income to not have to think about the money as much. So many people I'll see out there say, don't look at your P&L. It's all about the process. It's all about this. That's a lot easier said than done when yes. you don't have income, right? I mean, I came from a point in my career, in my life, when I started to trade, I was doing it only for income. And then what happened? I was in the center of the universe, we called it back in the S&P 500 pit. And I was still working for traders, working at UPS at night to be able to make a living to stay in business. And I was in a place where everybody was making millions of dollars. So in order for me to continue, I had to work. Yes. I don't know why people, they look at that and think of it as, I don't want to say that people are lazy when it comes to that. I think it's really a psychological block of like, well, if this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to figure it out and make it happen. But mm -hmm. it just doesn't work that way. Right, Chris? I mean, it's, no. it's one of those things. It takes time to get there. So give yourself time. I see this all the time. Give yourself time. Yeah, I think it's that. There's two things I think I see where people make mistakes. A, they don't build up the right bankroll. That's something you have to understand. So my background is, is architecture, engineering, mathematics, and I'm very chart-oriented. So I like to look at just the data, the math, in anything, even outside of the market itself. And just the math itself, a lot of folks go into this and try to do it full-time, and they're not properly bankrolled. And if they have a large drawdown at some point, they're going to go bust, especially if they don't have the right risk management um, tool set in place at that point in time. So I also knew in my 20s, I didn't have the right bankroll to really kind of do it full time. 
for me, not being involved in Wall Street at all, not being in the pits, not working with other professional traders, just said, okay, what am I going to come into this with? $50,000, $100,000? What is that going to get me? Where, where am I going to go? And if I blow 60% of that, where am I at? I'm starting from ground zero again. So at the time, I figured if I'm 25 years old, it's probably best if I have closer to a half a million to a million dollars in liquid cash that I can afford to lose outside of my living expenses to try to make a go at this, to do it full time, which I didn't have at that point in life. So I just decided it's not for me. Now you can build that bankrupt bankroll up over time. And I think every trader that wants to do this full time for a living has to build that bankroll up themselves in the market, just to prove to themselves that they can actually do it. If somebody hands you a million dollars and said, Hey, go trade for a living. I bet you 90% of those people go bust over time because they haven't built that bankroll themselves. Now, I don't know that from experience, but this is what I've heard from other successful investors and, and what I've read throughout history, just folks that have done this decades and decades before us. First off, I want to welcome everybody on Twitter. Now we got the Twitter live stream up and running. So uh, thank you all, all of you for tuning in now. And we're having a great discussion talking about deciding, making that mental decision of I'm going to do this part time. And you could always make the decision at some point, I think also down the road to go full time. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have that initial commitment to just doing this part time, that's extremely, I think, important. I think that's the way most people should should start out. And a couple of things I want to get to next is you are going to you're going to talk today a lot about uh, stocks when we get to charts. You're trying to grow a portfolio. I know this is Futures Radio Show, but there's a lot to take from how you put together not only your mindset, like we've talked about, now putting together a strategy to where you can actually execute it effectively being part-time. Talk to us about the first steps that a trader should go through in effectively creating a strategy to execute part-time. So I think as we talked a little bit earlier in this session is you have to understand yourself first, mentally, who are you and what are you comfortable with doing? Can you trade full-time? And if you're going to trade full-time, what are you going to do when you trade full-time? Are you going to trade futures? Are you going to trade stocks? Other options now with, with crypto and, and whatever else out there, Forex. So you have to understand what's the vehicle you're going to use, or you're going to use multiple vehicles. I know a lot of really successful traders that they kind of look at multiple vehicles and say, I'm going to make money because I see a lot of the same human element patterns from market to market. So I'm going to trade that from a technical basis. So I think number one is know yourself. What are you comfortable with? What can you do? What is that bankroll that you're going to start with? What do you need to live off of? And what are you comfortable losing? I think that's one of the biggest mental mistakes a lot of folks make early on and even in, throughout their careers is the game's not about winning and losing. The game's about making money. I mean, there's a lot of successful traders that can lose 50, 60% of the time, but still walk away with six, seven figures every single year because they have a certain system, they follow their rules, and they're making more money when they win versus making losing less money when they lose because they have strict sell rules and they know when to ride their winners. So I think that's number one is you have to just get rid of that whole mindset of I've got to be right versus being wrong. No, you want to make money. Making money is what you want to do. And, and, and they don't fully correlate. They correlate a little bit, but they don't fully correlate. So I think number one is understand who you are yourself in, in, in your own mind. Once you establish that, then you have to get a set of bases of rules. Are you going to trade fundamentally? Are you going to trade technically? Are you going to do a combination between the two? Um, and then once you start to figure that out is, okay, how do you identify opportunities? Are you going to create, how you create and watch list? What type of software are you using? What type of services are you using? And once you build that, uh, that watch list, how do you actually execute on the watch list itself? What are your buy signals? What are your pyramid up signals? What are your sell signals? Um, what are your move to cash signals? Whatever they may be, you have to start to build that system at that point. And that's more what I call money management. Um, I think if you're a specific trader, you maybe don't have to diversify as much because you're doing this for a living. And once you become really comfortable and you start to get that gut feel, what works and what doesn't work, 
um, in different types of cycles and markets. Um, you kind of just stick to that one strategy. I diversify a little bit more as an investor. So I have the growth account. I have more of what I call a FANG slash value account. So it has a combination of FANG stocks and then your traditional Procter and & Gamble's and, and, and Home Depot's and stuff like that. Um, have the index funds, but I've also gotten to crypto in the last couple of years as well. So I've allocated some funds there and it started out smaller, but it's grown over time with some success there. And I'm still interested. It's very speculative, but I'm definitely interested in that as well. So I think some of the steps are understand yourself, start to kind of set up some trading rules. So whether it's technical, fundamental analysis, kind of combination of both, and then understand how you can execute on opportunities. You have to develop those opportunities and then understand what the rules are to kind of make it work so you can make money over time. And I think this applies to both full-time traders and part-time. This is what I do part-time as well. So when I'm in my growth account, I use these same rules. Now, I did mention I'm more discretionary than some, tra some other traders out there not as symptomatic, systematic. Now, a lot of my foundation is based off of William O'Neill's cancelum system. So there's a lot of rules within that cancelum system. I don't follow them all to a T. I use a lot of it as my foundation, but I do deviate from the overall rules just because I'm doing this a little bit longer term now that I'm in my 40s versus when I was in my 20s. Back then, I had a lot more stringent. I got to sell at 5 to 8%, uh, cut my losses. I'm going to let my wins run to 25 or 30%, then take my gains or start to take portions of my gains. And I still implement some of that today, but I, I've loosened the rules a little bit more just because my time frame's a lot longer now. And the funny, Chris, as we get older, the time frame gets longer, right? And, mm -hmm. and what's so interesting is that we have so much more time as a younger person, but we don't think that way. Right. It, it's so yep. strange that when I got into my 40s, all of a sudden I'm looking at so much more longer term stuff. And I'm like, yo, man, where were you when you were in your 20s making this money, doing all these other things? I wasn't thinking as, as much long term. But I want to go. That, that's actually a good point. I'll jump on that for one second. So I sit here in my early 40s. And like I said, I started trading at 20 years old, 1998. And I was like, all right, if I knew what I know now back then, I would be maybe five or 10 times wealthier at this point. Now it's all hindsight. Exactly. Everybody says that, sure. but I was swing trading. There's a lot of stocks that I was swing trading, which now are the FANG stocks. So you take your Apples and your Amazons, your Netflix. I was trading those stocks in the mid 2000s. I wasn't holding them long-term. Had I thrown in five grand into each stock and just held it over time? I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars right there over the last 20 years. But what I draw from that is, okay, that's great. That's hindsight. But can I take the lessons I've learned now in the last 20 years? Can I repeat that or, or, or take those lessons and try to, repeat the results over the next 20 years. So I still yeah. think of myself as fairly young. So now going from early 40s to early 60s, can I go make seven or seven plus figures over the next 20 years based on those lessons I've learned now? And that's what I'd like to try to implement from this point forward. And although I do work full time at this point and I have a career, it's very successful, it's in real estate, I'm not going to work real estate forever. I mean, I'd like to have passive income that comes from that real estate. Again, that always keeps me very comfortable in my own mindset. So I don't have to worry about make an income out of the market, but I want to grow a certain amount of wealth. Whether I ever touch it or use it, that, that doesn't matter to me, but I want, I'd like to hand it off to my kids at that point. So if I can go make a significant amount of money in the next 20 years, I mean, that's that's my goal at this point. And, that, and that's a legacy I'll leave to my children, my grandchildren, hopefully, if I get that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's so well said. And I want to go back to some of the things that you talked about. And one of the things that that really I started to think about was how structured you are. And you then you started to say that, you know, you're a little bit more discretionary maybe than than most people uh, would think. How do you develop a really structured plan? Like you said, know where your buy signals are, know where your sell signals are, know where everything is, and then not be reactive if something happens. Because when you're part time, you're not there all the time. 
Right. So when you're a little bit discretionary, to me, I'm trying to figure out how you actually take that discretionary mindset and apply that to a very structured plan. So because I am longer term, it gives me an opportunity where I don't have to really look at stuff intraday. Um, I've mentioned some folks in the past and I've been to some other podcasts and shows. I do get alerts on my phone. So my phone's with us. I mean, our phones are basically attached to all of us these days. So from my trading account, if there's certain positions I'm starting to get concerned about or certain positions I'd like to get into, certain names, I'll have alerts set up and it'll text me immediately. And it's up to me of how busy I am at that point of the day. Do I want to buy it? Do I not want to buy it? You know, you, you can put limit orders in. Um, you can set certain market orders that are in the account itself. I don't like to do that anymore. And I don't put in hard stops either if I want to sell a stock. So if I own a stock, for example, at 100, and if it drops to 90, I'm going to sell. I don't have an automatic sell at 90 because I've seen too many times in the past where intraday, the market makers will take it below 90 and then bring it right back up to 100. Then I'm back at even. I'm like, oh, shit, I just took a 10% loss during the day when the stock's right where it started at the beginning of the day. So I really I take those signals and I try to make those decisions myself and not automate it through the computer. Um, because I'm not trading and I don't have really tight margins as far as what needs to be a win and a loss for me as far as making money. I, when I get an alert, I look at it. If it's something that's not important, I look down at my phone and say, you know what, I'll deal with this tonight. At the end of each day, I do go back and I look and see how did all my stocks perform? How do the portfolios perform? So I do look at my portfolios just about every single day at the end of the night. So whether it's before we put the kids to bed or after the kids go to bed, I sit down, get in front of the computer, I'll look at those stocks. I used to try to look at my screens every night as well. Hey, what's going on in the market? Is there anything that's interesting for tomorrow? Should I set up any trades? But because I don't trade as actively as I used to, I do it more on a weekly basis. Some weeks, I'll look at everything every single day. Some weeks, I won't look at anything Monday through Friday. And then Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I'll sit down, spend an hour or two and go, okay, this is what I want to set up for the following week and kind of make some mental notes of what I want to do within the portfolio itself. Do you find that that process actually helps you look at the market with, with more clarity because you, you set yourself back from it and you don't feel like you're looking at every tick? It does. I think it definitely does. If I just kept to that and I wasn't on Twitter, 100% that would work. The problem is I'm on Twitter and I'm looking at a feed every <laughs> single day. And I use Twitter as really my newspaper as well. So yeah. I curate my Twitter feed for the stock market, but I also curate for other stuff I'm interested in. So I've, I've got a diverse range of folks I follow in all different areas. And uh, unfortunately, because I am on Twitter and it's on my phone and I'll look at it when I wake up at lunch, during the day, at the end of the day, at nighttime, I just see a lot of feeds from a lot of great people out there. And sometimes that gets my mind going a little bit too antsy. I'm like, oh no, crap. Am I doing this right? Should I do that? Is this going to fall or is this going to be a bounce? I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of start to play with your mind. And, and unfortunately, I think Twitter does mess with my mind a little bit more than maybe it used to when I wasn't on it so much 10 years ago. So that's something I try to battle myself. Twitter's definitely a battle because I love using the actual media platform. but there's a, And I try to cancel out some folks that get me a little nutty on there. And I either <laughs> block them, I mute them, whatever it may be, because I'm trying to focus as well. But I want to be engaging to the community. It's a great community to be in, but there's a lot of noise on Twitter. Tons. And, and the noise grows really yeah, each and definitely. every year. Uh, give us one way that you use Twitter that helps you potentially get into a trade or look at a specific market? I, I, I follow a bunch of people and I won't name any names here because I'm sure I'll leave a bunch of people out, but there's some folks out there who do some great research on stocks. So if there's stocks that are showing up on my screens, so that means be the first time I notice it. But then I start to notice some people on Twitter start to actually write about it. Hey, this is what I like, or I'm going to be doing an interview with somebody from the company, like the CEO, whatever it may be. That starts to grab my attention at that point. And then I'll start to dive deeper. Because a lot of times when, I, when a stock makes my screens at night, and I use MarketSmith for a lot of my screens, 
I, I ignore it at first, but then when I start to see it multiple times over a few weeks, I'm like, oh, wait, this stock, I've, I've noticed this guy show up for maybe five or six times over the last seven or eight days. Let me take note what's going on. Let's dive deeper into the stock a little bit. And then when I see it on Twitter, maybe it's a little bit of that confirmation bias, but I know other folks that are smart are starting to notice it as well. So maybe there's a trend there and maybe there's something where this stock might make a run. And then ultimately I'll have to make a decision at that point. Do I want to buy it? Now it goes both ways as well. Like I, I bought a stock recently, Roblox. And if you go back a year or so ago, I didn't like the stock at all after it IPO'd. And part of that reason was because my son, who's now aged out of Roblox, him and his friends just weren't using it anymore. So I'm like, I just don't see where that thing's going to go in the future. Um, but my daughter, who's a little bit younger, she's into it. All her friends are into it. But then I started to learn a little bit more about the overall company, what their vision was, the metaverse kind of coming into play. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I kind of overlooked this last year. The good thing is it went way up. To, I think it went up to $140 a share. Now it's back below $80 a share. Yeah. So now is the time where I felt it was a little bit more risk reward um, opportunity for me to kind of get into the stock now. So sometimes Twitter, I'll ignore what I'm seeing just because it doesn't fit my actual definition of what's a good investment may be. Other times there's, there's companies I've never heard of. Somebody will start talking about, then a second person starts talking about, let me dive into this. And it's like, whoa, this might be a great investment. I am primarily futures, but I do invest in a lot of stocks and I have found Twitter to be a great resource for that. Like you said, there's many people out there that I follow. Obviously, of course, I follow them for that reason is because they're really good at bringing my attention to a lot of these things. Then we come in and we do our own research and, and things like that. And, you know, obviously, this is a futures radio show. I already mentioned a little bit earlier on, I said, we're going to focus a lot on stocks today. And I welcome the stock audience um, that follows you. But also, I wanted to talk about the futures audience that follows me and comes into the show and also and how maybe we could talk about how maybe you even use futures. I think one of the key things for me as a futures trader looking at people like yourself and other stock people is to what are the primary stocks that they're looking at? What are the stocks that they like? How is that impacting the indices as an indice trader in the futures? I really like to see that. Like a lot lately, we're talking about what's happening between the Russell and the NASDAQ, and we're seeing mm -hmm. divergence with the S&P 500. So then I go to a lot of the stock guys and I say, what are you guys seeing? Because I'm not following stocks the way that you are. Um, and then I start to say, okay, I could start to put together and paint the picture of what I think is really happening in the market. And it's a, it's hugely beneficial to me. Do you at all, Chris, or how do you at all use futures? Be honest, I don't use them too much, but I like to kind of catch the sediment of what's going on outside of just the market in the futures itself. And that, and that could apply to any of the markets as well. Whether you're looking at treasuries, you're looking at bonds, what's the sediment? What are they looking at? Historically, where are we at? I like to look at a lot of macro trends historically. When A happens, what happens to B and C? When B and C happens, what happens to D and E and kind of so forth and so on down that chain? It's all kind of interrelated and it's all run by humans. As, as, as much as it's computerized, as much as it's algorithms and artificial intelligence, whatever's being used, it's all still gets uh, programmed by humans themselves. So it's us, it's in our DNA and these patterns that repeat over and over, it's because us humans will never change. And that, that kind of replicates itself in all the markets. So they all kind of interrelate at the end of the day. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I definitely, I pay attention to certain signals. So if something's getting extreme in the futures markets, okay, what does that mean in the past? And how's that going to affect my portfolio, my stocks now? So I'll kind of look at it that more from a macro standpoint, not on a day-to-day kind of uh, intraday type standpoint, if that makes sure. sense. And I think for a lot of the stock traders that are tuning in listening to this, I mean, where else are you going to look at oil? Where else are you going to look at gold? Right. I mean, I don't look at the ETFs for that pretty much at all. I mean- you know, oil and gold are becoming big stories right now. Interest rates, I think those are big things to watch for and how they are impacting stocks and vice versa, right? I mean, it, 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 there's all this 
this puzzle and that we're trying to put together. And I always think it's important to learn from people that are doing other things within the market because it makes us really recognize how big the marketplace really is. Sure. I mean, I trade S&P and NASDAQ and you think that you're just looking at the S&P and NASDAQ the way it's moving. And there are so many hands and things that are moving the S&P and NASDAQ. And sometimes you'll find what those reasons are and that will really give you clarity as to why we're choppy, why we're rallying, why we're breaking, why there's divergence. And not that right. you necessarily need to know why a lot of times, but it gives you awareness and I think it just makes you a better executor uh, of trading. Now, I want to take a quick break here and when we get back, I see the questions starting to come in. And like I said, if you're following us on Twitter, watching this live, come over to YouTube. We're going to take the questions only on YouTube. But when we come back, Chris, what I want to do is I want to take a look at some of your charts. I want to dig in and see what it is that you look at and where you come to the point where you decide uh, to make a decision to get into a market. I want to look a little bit at your scans and just get into some of the details about the technicals. Sure. And maybe we'll talk a little bit macro and just see ultimately altogether what you're seeing uh, in the market right now. So we'll be back in 30 seconds with Chris, charts and questions. Replace your exchange with TradeStation Crypto. Dealing with multiple exchanges is complicated and it takes time, except with TradeStation Crypto. Because we are not an exchange, we are a broker. You have access to multiple pools of liquidity, all in one platform, in one account, one way. Trade crypto your way, plus earn interest on your eligible cryptocurrencies. Get started in one click. Trade the global markets with trading technologies. TT is the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now with integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. Learn more at tradingtechnologies.com. We are back with Chris. Loving this discussion. And I want to start off with just go into the charts. Then we've talked about the mindset behind you deciding to go part-time. We've talked about even some of the rules that you put in a place in developing a strategy. But now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty here a little bit. Talk to us about some of the indicators, some of the technicals, some of the things that you're looking at to help you make a trade decision. Definitely. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start more with a macro chart first, two of them actually. And this is one that I think a lot of my followers take a lot of interest in these days. So I put this together on stock charts. And what it is is the line that you've seen that's red and black that kind of goes through the chart itself, that's the percentage of stocks that are above their own individual 200-day moving average. And then the shaded area in the background is actually the NASDAQ. So it's it's the number of stocks above the 200-day moving average on the NASDAQ specific. So I do this for the NASDAQ, for the S&P to see where they're at. And I can show you in a second the difference between the two. And historically, now this is only shown about a 10-year snapshot of this, but historically, when the number of stocks go that are trading below their 200-day moving average, go below that level and it goes below 25%, you start to get into an environment where you want to consider accumulation. It only happens maybe three to five times every decade. It's not something that happens very often. As you can see, the majority of the time that line sits over anywhere between 35% and as much as 75%. And it kind of just fluctuates in between there. And there's no major macro indicator that comes out of it. However, when you start to go into a correction, and, and, and I don't look at it for tops, I really just look at it for corrections. And when is a correction or a change in trend going to happen as we're correcting in the market? As you can see, for most of 2021, we peaked out, right? As we kind of hit 2021, the NASDAQ kept going up, but the actual line itself went down as far as the number of stocks trading above their 200-day moving average. And some may ask, well, why did that divergence happen? The reason the divergence happened is because the, the NASDAQ so heavily weighted with a lot of the FANG stocks and the large technology stocks that kept going to new highs, where the growth stocks got absolutely crushed in the past year. 
And we saw a lot of those stocks, the underlying stocks, what's underneath the hood of the market itself, were getting destroyed throughout 2021, but the NASDAQ kept going up. So I started to notice this diversion. I said, hey, something's going to have to happen. One's going to have to kind of converge back to the other over time. So either the NASDAQ's going to eventually start to fall and follow where all the other stocks are going, or the growth stocks will hit a bottom, they'll start to come back up, and the NASDAQ will go on to create new highs. What we're seeing here in early 2022 is the NASDAQ has finally started to fall over the last couple of months, and this line continues to go blower. And what we noticed yesterday was it was the first time it dropped below that 25% key level um, since the, two, the, the, the COVID crash in 2020. And if you go back prior to that, it was late 2018, and then it was 2016 prior to that. Um, in those last three times where it happened, once it went below 25%, it went on to actually go below 15%, which means the markets themselves and all the stocks that make up the collection of the market could probably go down anywhere from another 10 to 30% when you go from 25% down to 15%. Now, the black swan event that happened in 2020 was COVID. So that went all the way down to maybe like three or 4% of stocks that were above the 200 day moving average. That's, that's, that's not usual. That's not a natural correction. What we're seeing now is more of a sustained natural correction of the stocks on the NASDAQ. So in my mind, I like to kind of load up when this, when this figure of stocks that go below the 200 day moving average gets somewhere between 15 and 25%. Now, if it goes below 15%, that's what I call an accumulate zone. Now, a lot of people say it bounces back very quickly. On this weekly long-term chart, it does look like it bounces back very quickly, but it could take months for that bottom process to happen, especially with the individual stocks themselves. So if this chart eventually in the next couple of weeks goes below 15%, I've got about 64% cash in my growth portfolio. I will be putting most of that cash to work at that point in a lot of my higher conviction stocks that I think will do well over the next couple of years. And that's a long-term macro signal that I like in the markets. Now, as I said, it doesn't come along very often. So you can't really base all your decisions off of this particular chart because you can go years without anything happening on the chart itself. But because we're in that particular zone right now in 2022, I'm going to use the chart to my benefit. And if you take this chart back and you go 20 years, you can go back to 07, 08, you can go back to 2000, 2002. It always went below that 15% mark when the market started to bottom. It almost coincides perfectly because that collection of stocks makes up the overall market. So it gives you that kind of tip off when we're at the bottom of the market itself. So that's one, that one, one chart that I use from a macro standpoint. Another one that I use, actually, you know what? Let me just go forward for a second and let's look at the uh, S&P. Big difference now. This is the S&P 500 percentage of stocks above the 200-day moving average. 62% of all stocks in the S&P 500 is still above the 200-day moving average, where it's 22% in the NASDAQ. So there's a big divergence right now between the types of industries and sectors that comprise the S&P 500 and what comprises the NASDAQ. So the question becomes, will the NASDAQ and the S&P start to align itself kind of going forward? Will the NASDAQ, will the S&P continue to correct here? As you can see, it was at a high of 95% right as we were coming into 2021, and it has come down to 62%. But if you look at the past, again, COVID, 2018 and 2016, on the S&P, it usually doesn't go below 15%, but it went below 25% those three times. We're quite a ways away from 25%. So anyone that's just looking at the S&P 500 index overall and, and looking at it being within 5% of an all-time high, hey, the market's great. What's wrong with the market? I don't see anything wrong with the market. But if you're a growth stock investor and you have names that are down 50, 60, 70% over the last year, like, damn, this has been one of the worst markets I've seen in a long time. So there's a huge divergence right now of what's going on between the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ itself. And further, the stocks that make up the underlying part of the NASDAQ, because if you look at the main stocks in the NASDAQ, they're not doing so poorly right now. It's all the, the smaller mid-cap size growth stocks that are really just getting banged around. Um, so the question I ask myself is, do we have a lot further to go down so the S&P 500 and the big name NASDAQ stocks can kind of match what the growth stocks have been doing? 
or will the growth stocks bottom and the whole market goes back up? So that's the big question in everybody's mind right now is what's what's going to happen going forward? Um, I think based off of some re recent action, my gut tells me the S&P and the overall larger NASDAQ things will kind of come down a little bit further before we see some type of bottom in this market. That's just a gut feel. doesn't mean I'm right, but that's that's what I'm seeing right now from a macro perspective. I really like this chart as a longer term viewpoint of what's happening in the market because this is actually very easy visually to, to understand what's happening, right? Definitely. Um, and, and I think when we talk about divergence, for me as a futures trader, this really is like a lot of that push and pull type trade for us when you're just trading the indices. And you see the NASDAQ is the weaker one, the S&P is a stronger one, and it's always this battle. You could have days where the NASDAQ's down 150 and the S&P could be even or up 10. And that's right. a very difficult trade for a lot of intraday traders. For you on the longer term, what kind of resolves this? What are you looking for for divergence um, to eventually end? And, and when it does end, do you then see really a clear move from then? Because to me, it sounds like it feels like when that's finally over and they decide where we go, that could set something up for a clear trend. Yeah. So when this, if this, if this indicator, I won't say when it will, because it can turn up today and never and go right back about twenty five percent. We might not and might not go back below it for three years. Who knows? But if it goes below fifteen percent of all stocks in the Nasdaq that are below their own two hundred day moving average, what you want to look for is, is a basin of a lot of those stocks collectively as a group, a lot of those growth stocks, once they start to base and all hit bottoms and they don't make lower lows, and this indicator actually starts to bounce back up above 15% again, you've probably hit a bottom at that point. Now, it may drag along the bottom for a number of months, but you've probably hit the ultimate bottom or you're very close to that ultimate bottom. And if you're a longer-term investor, you can start putting money to work at that point. And if you have a longer-term perspective, you can say a year out, two years out, most likely I'm going to make money. If you bought stocks anywhere below 10% in 2020, same thing in late 2018, and then late 2016, after kind of a rough 2015 into 2016, you made money within one to two years. And you probably made a lot of money within one to two years if you held tight with a lot of your leading names. So you want to look at some stocks that have shown a little bit of relative strength, shown a little bit of a basin, and maybe recovering their own 200-day moving averages. So it's another chart that I really love. I'm going to throw up here real quickly that I've used out here. And here it is. So this is one I shared recently. And this is what I say, the key to every stock below 200-day moving average is what happens when they get back there from below. Um, do they hit resistance and drop back down? That's what I'm watching kind of going forward. And if you look at this chart, this is from Stan Weinstein's book, and I kind of changed it from the 30-week moving average to 200-day moving average. All these stocks are in this, this stage four decline recently, growth stocks in particular. Once they got below 200-day moving average, they're going to kind of hit a base down at the bottom. What you're going to be looking for is recovery of the 200-day moving average. And if there's a neckline, not all of them are going to have a neckline, but if there's some type of a neckline from a prior low, do they break above that and then actually hold that as support? So once they get back above the 200-day moving average, do they hold that as support or are they trying to grind a little bit higher? There's going to be a lot of overhead resistance, but once they start grinding above their 200-day moving average as a group now, you don't want just one or two stocks doing this. You want dozens of stocks doing this from multiple different industries within that growth sector. Once they start doing that, you know the bottom's been made. Nobody's going to pinpoint the bottom. Anyone that guesses the exact bottom, that's pure luck. I'm not going to guess it. Most people won't guess it. What you want to just see is the change in trend and then jump on that trend as it moves forward. Because then once this thing comes out of this rut that it's been in for the last, say, 12 months or so, it's going to go on a run for another 12 to 18 months. Now, it might not be all the same names, but you want to start to identify what are the strongest stocks coming out of this 200-day this bottom 
and they're going to start to move forward. You might have some new leaders that weren't there a year or two ago, but you want to start to identify those. And we'll get into that in a second as far as how do you start to kind of um, screen for stocks such as that. And that, that's really what we're looking for is so you want this indicator here to kind of bounce back up, but then you want individual stocks to kind of do the same thing at the same time. And that will give the signal that we've hit a bottom and now the trend is going to change. And we're going to start to move up now going forward. But the hard part is now is finding what are the right stocks that are going to move up. Yeah, right. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. The first question I have when I look at this is that you said you're going to have 64% cash available if that does happen. At what point in time do you start, did you start to raise cash because you recognize that this is a scenario you want to be in more cash for? So if it does happen, I have that 64%. Sure. So coming into September, I already had 20% cash. I was skeptical of a few things. And, and since the pandemic has started, my cash levels were higher than what they normally are. There's been a couple of times when it's gone down into the single digits, but I was holding a little bit more cash throughout the past year just because the pandemic was unknown territory for me. So being that very conservative person that I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to hold a little bit more cash on the side. So I was about 20% coming into September. Going into October is when I started selling a lot of my positions in my portfolio or trimming positions. So I took it from 20% to about 37% by the end of October. By the end of November, I was up over 60%. So I did a lot of my selling in October, November. Now, a number of names I was holding did take a lot of damage. It's not like I sold everything perfectly, and I still held a few names that still got banged up even more. Um, but I did what, save myself a tremendous amount of money by selling in October, November. So what was the trigger during those times to say to you, I've got to get out? Was this a predetermined thing, or is this something that we talked about discretionary? You've seen this before. You're looking at something on the macro side and say, hey, I've got to, I just have to start trimming here. Three things came into play. Number one, some of my stocks I own just weren't acting well anymore. They just they weren't going up on good news, earnings reports. I saw a lot of stocks in early October into early November. You saw a lot of stocks, even names I didn't own, were getting banged up after earnings. That was a signal. Number one is the whole sediment of growth stocks have changed. Now, some of them had changed earlier in the year, but as a group overall, once some of these stocks are going down 10, 12, 15, 18 percent after some earnings reports. Now I'm talking reporting some great numbers but they weren't to the expectations what they were in the previous year coming out of COVID. And they were just getting banged up after hours. They'd open up the next day, they'd be down 15, 20%. So I said, that, that's a big signal. I started tweeting about that. That was number one. Number two, the valuations. Historically, the valuations, valuations a lot of these growth stocks start and get up to 50X, 60X, 70X. We actually had a handful of stocks that were over 100X sales. They were trading that, which historically is just ridiculous. I don't care what kind of company you're, I don't care how much revenue you're making. That's just that's just stupid valuations. And we still have a few of them up there today that are up near 80, 90X. Just didn't make any sense. So I did a couple of tweets on stocks that were up over um, 50 to maybe 80X valuation. And then the third one was, how far were they trading above their own 200-day moving average? So again, coming back to that 200-day moving average, there were a number of stocks that were, 100, were trading 100% above their 200-day moving average. That's standard deviation. That's too much of a spread there. When stocks start getting 70 to 80 to 90% above their 200-day moving average, it's likely they're going to correct and pull back. And I identified a whole handful of stocks that are up 80 to 100 plus percent above the 200-day. Within a month, they're all at their 200-day. Just about all of them are now below their 200-day moving average. So you're talking about 50 and 60% drawdowns from just October, November. So those were three of the main things. And then the last thing, when we talked about using Twitter, the sediment in Twitter, everybody thought they were making easy money. October, November. Hey, this is yes, easy. This did. is great. Everything's going to bounce back. And I'm like, you know what? Too much, too much easy money out there. There's too much positivity with a lot of stuff that I'm seeing in the underlying market. And then watching this indicator in front of us on the screen kind of going down and diverging from the overall NASDAQ. I said, the breath is telling me a different story than what's really going on in the market right here. I should start raising some cash. And a lot of people said, hey, 
I thought you were a long-term investor. What are you raising cash for? This doesn't make any sense. I thought your horizon's three to five years. And that is true. And there are a few names I did not sell. I did trim them. But I said, you know what? Why am I going to take a 50% drawdown across the entire portfolio? Let's raise some cash and I'll get back in when I think things base and maybe kind of cycle through some other stocks at that point. Some of these old names from 2020, 2021, they're not going to be the leaders going forward. I think some of them are still going to be great stocks over the next 10 years, the next decade. If you go back to Apple and Amazon and Netflix in the early 2000s, they had 50 to 80% drawdowns. But then if you held them for 20 years, you're up a couple, you're maybe up 150,000%, which is absurd when you think about it. But Amazon is. Amazon's up 150,000% and it had a 90% drawdown in the early 2000s. So some of them you can sit through, some of them you probably don't want to sit through and maybe just catch it on the way back up. Um, so I trimmed a number of names and then I reduced a number of names as well. I still hold them, but I reduced the overall position size. And I'm just waiting to see what happens if they base here. And then if I feel like they're going to be on the upturn, I'll put that position size back on. I'll kind of start increasing the position again, just because I like the company. Got it. And I want to go to this question that, that Zachary Musso is putting out. He says, dope to see two of my favorites on here talking shop. What's up, Zach? Uh, with these macro market health indicators, is there a why in market narrative that will ever deter you from accumulating when everything lines up? So... When everything lines up, Zach, the toughest thing is that's usually when blood is running in the street, and it's probably the toughest time to start buying. If you go back to this little, this, this, this major peak down in 2020, I bought four names in the middle of March of 2020, and it was very difficult to buy those stocks because we had COVID. We didn't know what was going on. Things were starting to lock down. First time in my life I saw anything like that, and I just saw names that went to ridiculously low valuations. I'm like, these are great companies, great names. I have no idea that some of them are going to be really propelled because of the whole lockdown nature and being on Zoom and, and everything being remote. I thought they were going to do well regardless. Um, I started to buy and I was nervous. And all four stocks that I bought, all of them went down another at least 10%. Some of them went down 20% further after buying them. I held them all. All four of them were up over 100% within six months from my original buy, um, not even the low point. So when everything lines up, it's probably one of the hardest times to actually go out there and put your cash into use. But if you have a longer time frame, you should be fine over time. I'm not telling you definitely will be fine, but you should be time over, over time and you're going to make money. But it is a very difficult time to buy when everything lines up because that's usually at the worst point in the market where everybody's just running for the doors. And that's where you want to start accumulating. Another thing I wanted to talk about was how you have – your list of names, how you get to your list of names. Mm -hmm. I was actually looking at your Twitter account and saying, how does he come up with these stocks to watch in 2022? You had a whole list of maybe, let's say there's 20 in there. Yep. Um, how do you get to the point of identifying those as the ones you want to be watching this year? Correct. So if you look on this overall screen here, I've got a bunch of screens on the left, daily new highs, daily high within 15%, new IPOs. Now, for example, if I go into new IPOs and I just do an open edit, I'm looking for a relative strength rate in a greater than 50%. I'm looking for the current price of the stock to be over six. I want the, uh, the daily average volume to be at a certain amount was the IPO within the last few years. I'm looking for that particular day when I'm screening it, the price percentage change to be above zero. So I want a stock that was positive on the day. And then is the volume 1% or greater? So I'm looking for a stock, if it's up 2% on the day, was the volume also 50% above the average volume? Because I want to see institutions kind of getting interested and I want to see larger buy-in. Uh, there's a composite rating that I look at. This is proprietary to, uh, to Market Smith and, and William O'Neill and CanSlim. It's a rating that kind of takes earnings into play, takes uh, technical relative strength into play, and it gives you an overall composite rating for the stock itself. 
So from one to 99, 99 being the best, I'm looking for stocks that are at least at 50 or above based on that rate. And, and then in this particular screen, I put sales percentage change in the last quarter. I want it above 20%. So a lot of times when I'm screening for stocks, I want to see sales Q over Q and year over year um, increasing by at least 20 to 25%. And the larger, the better. And those are stocks that I really want to focus on. I always start with sales first because some of these young growth stocks don't have positive earnings yet. If the earnings are positive, even better. It's, it's even more of a home run in my book because earnings is what really drives uh, stock prices over the long term. Sales are great initially, but if you don't get to positive earnings, the stock's not going to have a sustainable run. And when I say sustainable, I'm talking two, three, five, 10 plus years. And if you look at our greatest stocks over the last 10, 20 years, they all had positive earnings and they're basically cash registers. So those are the stocks you want to focus on. Now, I do buy stocks that don't have positive earnings, but those are growth stocks that I hope will flip that over time. So within a year or two, if they're at negative earnings now, I'm hoping based on their sales, maybe cutting some expenses, those earnings will eventually become positive. So this is just one example of one screen. Um, same thing with daily new highs. If you go into the edit, I've got some of these same things, the RS rate in, what's the comp rate in, percentage off high. Now, if I actually just run this, this screen real quick, this is something very interesting. As of today, and this is live real time during the day, eight stocks have made new highs today based off the parameters that I've set in this particular screen. Normally in a healthy market, I would have probably 208 stocks on this screen. So what this is telling me is that we're in a very weak market for what I'm looking for. And if you look at the sectors right here, that I just highlighted in orange, you're looking at energy, business services, medical, mining. So you're looking at some of your commodity stocks, energy type stocks. That's what's leading the market right now. If you look at the industry groups and you look at the stocks that are making new highs, it's coming from energy. It's oil, it's gas. Um, you have some miscellaneous mining type stocks that are making brand new highs. That's where the money is. So if you're a trader, you want to be trading these stocks right now. I, in particular, don't like trading these stocks or investing in them, I should say. So I stay out and I stay in cash. But if I was a true day-to-day -day trader, these are the stocks that I'd be looking to trade right now. And I'd be looking for signals to say, okay, are they coming out of a base? Are they coming above a certain moving average line? Whatever it may be, I want to buy these stocks in these high-flying industries that we have right now. And, and these are the sectors where we're getting these companies from. Um, this brings me real quick as to why stock traders would go to the futures markets and look at what's happening in oil. If you want to see why this is happening, you see what's happening in the futures markets. You know, you see what's happening correct. in oil, like you talk about with the oil stocks. And that to me is, excuse me, something that I, if I was trading those oil stocks, you look at how they look compared to oil. Yes. And you keep a close eye on oil and it might be a leading indicator to what happens potentially in your stock. And you could also find out who was leading the move up before oil. And I, there's so many different things you could look at, little some nuances Agreed. as to where if you find something that's behind the scenes, potentially moving the market you're trading or what's leading, it can, might, might be something else. So uh, futures are great for, for things like that. So going back to your original question, how did I find stocks for 2022? And I went aggressive. I went with growth stocks. And we're going to find out if growth stocks are going to have a bad year or a good year in 2022. And I always preface it. It's a watch list. It's not my portfolio. It's not a buy list. And I write that pretty detailed in my blog. These are stocks that I'm just looking at. They're watching. And I designate if I own any shares in those stocks at that particular time. And a couple of stocks on the list this year I do own or have bought since I put the list out. But it is truly a watch list. Let's just go to this list for a second, show you how it's performing. And it's performed very poorly at this point. If I look at year to date percentage change, every single stock is down from this watch list year to date so far. Airbnb only being down a point and a half. But if you go to Global E Online, they're down 32% at this point. And a lot of these stocks are down anywhere from 14% to 32%. So these stocks are down a tremendous amount just year to date. And we're, we're less than a month into the year itself. 
However, with that said, when I built this list, I built it off of fund increase. So if you come over here, this is the number of funds that are in here. So institutional funds. I like I like stocks that have institutional sponsorship because I truly believe that's what really drives stocks over the long term. So I want to know, okay, fund percent increase. What stocks actually have a large increase in funds Q over Q? So like SoFi Technology, which has actually said some good news today, it's up 16%. They got their bank charter, or at least they got approval for regulation for a bank charter. Um, they had a 95% increase of institutional funds from one quarter to the other. So for example, let's just go into it and look at the chart for a second. And uh, this is no recommendation. This is no investment advice to anyone out there. But if I just open this up and I come into fund ownership, in December of 2020, there's 49 funds owning it. Then it went down to 30, then it jumped to 77, to 123, to 240. Now, as sloppy as this chart looks, this is telling me that somebody's accumulating this, this, this company. And then you can dive deeper and go into the shares itself and say, okay, how many shares they buy? Okay, great. So it went from 123 funds to 240, but was the net number of shares greater than what it was last quarter? And did that also increase 95%? So I'll drill down into that as well and say, okay, if I see a company that's doubling the number of funds that are buying the stock, but then I see the number of shares that they're accumulating also doubles, somebody's very interested in the stock. And I probably want to ride their coattails since they're institutional professional investors. They probably know a little bit more than I do. doesn't mean they're going to be right. I've seen this where these numbers go up and the stock still goes down. So it's not a foolproof strategy, but I just try to tilt those odds into my favor and say, okay, if institutions are buying, most likely this stock will go up over time if sales and earnings are increasing. So you have to have that kind of combined with the institutional investors going up. You can drill down even further and say, okay, what funds are owning it? So I can kind of just jump into, and this gets a little bit detailed. These are all the funds that are accumulating shares in this particular stock. Now, if there's some certain funds that I follow that I know do really well over time and they're starting to accumulate heavy, that's even a better reason for me to kind of get into the stock. Now, I don't go into this too much, but I, I keep an eye on a couple funds here and there just to see if it's a fund that I like that buys growth stocks that I also like and they're starting to accumulate. It, it makes sense at that point. Um, going back to the just the overall watch list, I'm looking at price to sales. I mean, I don't always use this indicator, but when we get into extreme environments, I don't like stocks that have high price to sales. So for example, NET was one stock that was on the list right here. They're still at a price to sales of 53X. They were over 100X though. So that's come down by 50%. Historically, 53X is still very high. I think this stock can come down a lot more. And right now, if we go into net, net is 55% off its high right now. And it's forming a pattern that I'm seeing in a lot of stocks right here. If you look, it's got this, um, let me just get this pen out. Don't wanna work for me. See this little down pattern? Yeah, let me make this bigger I'm for everybody. I'm seeing this pattern, this, this, I don't know if you want to call it a flag pattern, whatever you want to term it and call it, where a stock hit a peak late last year and now dropped considerably over the last two months. If I go through this list below 20 stocks or so, I bet you at least half of them have this pattern. And if I go into a larger list of growth stocks just in the overall market, almost half of them have this same pattern as well. We're crypto too. <laughs> crypto as well, yeah. Just, I see it in crypto a lot. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier, where the sentiment kind of, it, it translates from market to market. I mean, yep. people have the same market and it comes back to liquidity as well. You figure a lot of investors are investing in the stock market. Maybe they're investing in futures. Maybe they're investing in, in crypto. When one or two of those markets, if not all of them, start to come down, they've got to raise liquidity and maybe cover certain trades that they have or certain positions elsewhere or raise just capital in general. So you're going to see this same human pattern across markets, whether it be a stock, a crypto or a future play. Um, so I'm seeing this in a lot of different stocks. You might term this a stage four breakdown. It's now below the 200 day moving average. I want to see the stock base now. 
So I, I really love this stock. I owned it last year, did really well in the stock. I bought it low, um, started to sell it as it was kind of going through this peak last year. I didn't sell it perfectly at the top, but I definitely, I, I started selling at 160. I sold again at 189. I made some really good money on the stock. Now it's back at 98. So it's about half of where I sold a majority of my shares. I want to get back into it, but I need to see it base. Right now at $98 a share, I don't know if this is going to go down to $50 a share or it'll be back at 120 within the next two months, but I want to see it base. This is where my patience comes in. I'll let the stock base start to recover the 200-day move average, and I'll buy it when the risk is more aligned with my conservative nature. I don't need to pick the bottom, and I don't need to have a buy at the bottom, and maybe I'll scale in and buy some shares initially and then start to kind of pyramid up as it starts to work, but I'm patient enough to know if this stock's going to work over time, buying a 98 or 120 is not a difference if it's going back to 200 for me personally. So that's my mindset when I kind of get back into a stock or just get into a stock for the first time. Thank you. Yeah. And you mentioned patience and I, I've talked about this a lot on Twitter. You only can be patient if you know what you're looking for. You've put the time in, you put the research in. So when it does start to base, like you mentioned, that's where your patience comes into play because you know what you're looking for. It, it, everybody just says be patient, but if you don't know that that's what you're looking for, then yes. all of a sudden one update, you're going, well, I've been waiting and now I buy it and there's no structure behind it. But right. Chris, been learning a ton, but I'm starting to see questions pile up Sure, and I, I don't want to keep you for too long. And maybe we'll, we're going to try to get to all these questions. So Definitely. I'm going to fire a few at you. So this one's a follow-up from Zach. He said, is there any short-term hedging on outright equity purchases with options chains on some of those names you mentioned? So you can. I, I've played around with hedging my portfolio and the growth portfolio itself, whether it be with options. So if you have a large enough position, you, you could actually just sell, sell options. I mean, that, that's, that's where the money's made in selling options, not buying them. So if you want to sell calls, you want to sell puts, whatever it may be, you can do that. I don't advise that to anyone. That's something they have to look into themselves. Not, not that I don't advise the strategy. I don't, I'm not the one that can really advise you on what to do. Have I used them? I have used them in the past. Um, do you want to go short? You can go short certain ETFs. You can go short the index itself. You can go short certain particular names. You can hedge things that way as well. I think it's a strategy that each individual has to really kind of come up with because it, it, it's it's a lot more detailed than just buying and selling an individual stock itself. Um, so the answer is asked question, yes, you can certainly hedge stuff. I personally have not had a lot of success hedging. It chops me up usually. Now, when you have a, sh a sure downtrend and you're hedging, you're going to make some money. But 75% of the time, the market's choppy and you're literally, you're just going to draw down your account with that hedging back and forth. So for me, in the overall scheme of things, I find it actually does not help me very much. I'd rather just go to cash. So I go to yeah. cash, I'll sit on the sideline, and when I'm ready to buy again, I'll buy again. So the hedging, for me in particular, doesn't work really well, or hasn't so far. Yeah, that's a great answer, because I think that so many people look to say, well, can I use options to hedge this position? Well, an easy way to hedge a position, I don't want to really say it's not hedging, but you trim the position, yeah, <laughs> right? right? And that just takes your exposure down. You can always get back in. We get so tied to these positions that we say, look, we bought it good. It's a really good position. We like it. But all of a sudden, it feels like it could pull pull off a little bit here. We could trim it. You get right back in. You know, I mean, yeah. that's something I don't think people think about enough. Um, I want to go, like I said, we've got a bunch of questions. I want to go to Tony now. He says, hi, Anthony and Chris. Great, great guest on Futures Radio Show. Does Chris ever check stocks based on SCTR ratings? on stock charts or just on IBD's RS? Thank you. I rely more on IBD's relative strength and just relative strength in general. Um, let me give you an example. Okay, just look at this chart right here. 
you got a relative straight line that's just just dipping straight down. So it was probably up near about 80, 90 um, on, a, on a scale of 1 to 99. Now it's down to 29. So this is a poor performance stock. If I go to the daily new highs real quick, and let's just pull up one stock here. I don't know this stock, Crown Holdings. But you're starting to see the relative strength go up. Let's get a different one. Let's get Hershey Company. Um, there you go. Relative strength line starting to go up here. And then the stock's also going up as well. What you want to see is maybe like, again, a break of a neckline where relative strength line starts going to new high territory, maybe over the last six to 12 months. That's what I rely on. What is the relative strength? So when I'm looking at growth stocks, I want to know if, if a growth stock has a relative strength rating of 20 right now, but it's starting to base and it looks like it's starting to kind of break out again. And then maybe the price action starting to break out again. Some volume starting to come in. Institutions are still supporting the stock. Um, that's something I'll start to get interested in. So I use the relative strength line, not just because it's, it's rated 89. I want to see a relative strength line that's actually maybe coming out of a base itself and starting to go to new highs over the last six to 12 months. And if it's a company that has growing sales, growing earnings, then that's something I'm definitely getting interested in. This is a question from Rob B. Since 2008, we've seen unprecedented QE and historically low rates. What happens to this system if this crutch, quote unquote, is scaled back significantly? This seems predicated on the market always going up. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing now. I think with growth stocks, those valuations got ahead of themselves. And I think the tapering is starting to happen. And I don't think we're going to see the QE that we've seen over the last decade or so. And I think valuations are coming back to historical norms. So we're starting to see that. The question becomes now, how deep is it going to run? With inflation going up, Is and we obviously know if inflation is not transitory at this point, inflation's here to stay for at least a period of time. I think they will taper with interest rates rising over the next year and whether they, ri they raise two times or four times, whatever it's going to be, whatever the Fed decides to do. The question becomes, will the S&P 500 start to roll over? Will those FANG stocks start to roll over? Will some of your more traditional uh, value consumer stocks start to roll over? If those things all start to roll over, I mean, our market's in trouble. Now, I'm not saying it will, but it's definitely something I'm keeping an eye on. Right now, like I said, I showed that S&P 500 chart earlier. Only 62% of the stocks, or I should say 62% of the stocks are still above the 200-day moving average. That's still fairly healthy. If those stocks start to roll over and that 62% wants to become 25%, we're in some big trouble. I, I just don't know what's going to happen, but let's let's see. We'll see if 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 the Nasdaq and the S&P are going to continue to diverge, where the S&P staying strong, where the underlying stocks, the breadth of the Nasdaq, is still very weak. So one final question. This is back from earlier. Robert Kennedy asked, uh, and before I even get to Robert's question, I I got to bring up futures again one more time because think about why you want to be watching interest rates right now. I've been looking at these micro Treasury yield futures and just the two-year, five-year, 10-year, just, it, I mean, you want to talk about a trend? Yeah, <laughs> Go sure. pull those up and see what those look like and see how they're impacting stock prices. So Agreed. I don't care if you're a short-term or long-term investor, you should be looking at that. I, 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 Auntie, I do that. I've got a buddy who's on Wall Street and he's more into treasuries and bonds and, and he understands interest rates. And I'm always picking his brain because he, he knows a lot more about that stuff than I do. And I try to pick his brain on questions I have and then translate it to what does it mean for my investing? But you're right. It's all interrelated. Yeah, I mean, that that's something that for me as a futures trader, why a lot of this year, I've talked in previous shows, uh, why I've been really shorting the NASDAQ. Technically, NASDAQ has been broken down, but when I've been seeing the rates upticking with it, and you're seeing that, you know, this happened, right? One's mm -hmm. going up and one's going yep. down, that opposite correlation. A lot of big traders are going to press that until it just doesn't work anymore. And Agreed. you know, there's a lot of macro things behind the scenes that are happening, obviously, to, to, to drive that. But 
it's something important to keep an eye on. Nonetheless, if all of a sudden rates are ticking down and you've got some names that you like, watch how they respond. Uh, you know, you've talked a lot today about Chris about just watching some reactions to stuff, and in you know getting in tune in rhythm and what's happening in the market. I think looking at correlations is a big thing. This will be the last question we take for mm -hmm. today. Um, Robert Kennedy, he asked this earlier before we even came on. Thank you, Robert, for the question. I thought it was a great question. He goes, "Hello, Mr. Pruna. Um, have you had a rotten evening at work? What is your process for devoting your attention to the markets? How do you keep your work issues thoughts from impeding your trade?" process it's a great question <laughs> it's a good question you know if i have a bad day at work i probably just won't even look at the portfolio because then my mind's gonna be a little screwy now i'm i'm in real estate and now, like i said i started out as a project man uh, an architect i'm a project manager now and i work for a lot of fortune 500 companies companies that are publicly listed as well so i don't talk about many of them on twitter because i just can't i'm either under nda or whatever it may be i'm representing a couple of big companies right now that are building in new york it does influence my thinking sometimes i think it biases me in both directions because I see if certain companies are downsizing or if they're growing their portfolio, whatever it may be. I posted an article last week because it's not my client, but Roku took 240,000 square feet in Times Square at over $90 a square foot. So you're talking about, what, $20, $30 million a year in rent for another 240,000 square feet in an environment where most people are saying, hey, we're going to go remote now. I don't think we're going to go fully remote. So, yes, work does impede sometimes what I'm thinking. But if I've had a bad day or I'm just busy or the family's had a bad day or the kids are in rotten moods or now with the kids being involved in sports and stuff, like I said, there's sometimes between Monday and Friday, I don't look at charts. I don't look at my screens and I don't really look at my portfolio either. And sometimes I'm making those tweets from the stance of my, my kids' games, just looking at my Twitter feed. So I try to stay active there and kind of stay in tune with the market itself. I get emails every night on what the new, high, new highs, new lows look like. I get emails of my portfolio every day. So I do get those emails. I do scan those. I may not go into detailed research, but every day at the end of the day, I get an email of what everything happens in my portfolio. So I do get to see that. If something kind of glares out at me, maybe I'll drill a little bit deeper. I'll say, you know what? I'll deal with this tomorrow. Um, because I am longer term and I'm not trading day to day, that I have that luxury. If I was trading day to day, I'd have to suck it up and just deal with it and, and, and do what I have to do to make those trades work, whether I had a good day or a bad day. But uh, because I don't, I, I can give it some time. You know, this is to me one of the, I think, great things about finding a successful way to trade part-time because you don't have to be tied to the screen. You don't have to be there. And I think that your perspective when you are part-time, you actually even have better perspective a lot of the times than the person who's sitting there just staring at it all day because you're just, you can get beat down so easily. I've gotten beat down physically, emotionally. It just, mm -hmm. it's, it's so difficult. It wears you down. And if you have something that allows you to be able to step back and not have to be there all the time, I just think it sometimes gives you better perspective a lot of times. And it just gives you longevity in this business. And that's what we all search for, right? Yeah. You and I talked about this at the beginning. In the early years, in the 20s, when we started, we thought about short-term results. We didn't think as much about the longer term. We get into our 40s, you and I now, and now we do think a little bit longer term. And for me, I was super active in the short term in my 20s and even 30s. In my 40s, I'm definitely more uh, of a more swing-type trader, uh, still relatively active on a daily basis, but not nearly uh, as I was. And I think that my perspective has gotten better. I think my my hand in the market has gotten stronger, yeah. right, Chris? Mm -hmm. Like Because Definitely. you see things from that standpoint. And if something's going on in your life, life, let's face it, it happens constantly, especially as we get older. Right. You could step back from that and, it, and it's not going to totally derail you 
from your from your trading it. But if you're short term and the next day you're just going in there, you're gonna maybe get, try to get revenge on the market or something right. you would do out of character. And and that is really I think the beauty of of building something that um, fits your lifestyle. And Chris, you were smart enough and fortunate enough to to figure that out at an early age. And I commend you in that. And you've done great work explaining on your blog. Uh, tell everybody where that website is. Uh, so you can find yeah, you. you guys can find me at chrisperuna.com. So that's C-H-R-I-S-P-E-R-R-U-N-A.com. And then you can find me on Twitter as well, at C Peruna. Highly recommend going to his website, checking it out. Tons of great info in there and definitely following him on Twitter. Been following you for years. It was great to meet you here today. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and really just sharing a lot of important stuff today. I really, really enjoyed this discussion. I know everybody that tuned in did as well. Uh, everybody, this will be recorded. It is not going uh, off when we're done. So when we're done today, it will be recorded and available everywhere on iTunes. If you enjoyed the discussion, give us a thumbs up and hit that like button. Never miss a Futures Radio Show live stream. Hit that subscribe button. I will see you guys next week. Chris, thank you again. Thank you, and Thank you, everybody, was, for tuning in. This was great. Great show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Cheers, everybody. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Future's radio show is produced by Crudelli Productions.